Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Brooke, today we're going to talk about, well, I'll be honest, I'm going to drop a bomb on you today. What? And we're going to talk about the inquiry model for instruction, which sounds really boring, but I'm going to tell you- I'm already asleep. Hey, <laughs> I'm going to tell you why I'm opposed to critical feminist theory. What? Yeah. Let's get into this now. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. All right, so Brooke. I need all the things. Give me everything. (laughs) What? All right, wait. So the bomb that you're dropping is? I don't agree that we should be teaching critical feminist theory oh, in classes. So though I think more people are familiar with critical race theory, critical race theory and critical feminist theory are basically the same, just swap out race and insert gender. Okay, I'm following you. And so this is a big argument right now Yeah, in the world. So let's set the scene. So critical race theory for the last, what would you say, four years, five years? Yeah. Has been a huge debate. And, and states are passing laws about well, it, yeah. including New Hampshire, um, where we are. It's super controversial, and essentially, critical race theory is saying, "Let me, yeah, let me break this down." So, yeah. I have a great study here from the University of North Carolina Press. It's titled "Perceptions of Teaching Race and Gender." Unfortunately, I can't link it for people because it's behind a paywall. But you can find it on JSTOR if you have access to JSTOR. The authors are Martell and Stevens, and they did this study in Massachusetts. But in the theoretical framework that they use for breaking down the study, they provide sort of the general concepts that are included in both critical race, CRT, and critical feminist theory, CFT. So there are five tenets. And the first one, they say that race and gender are social constructions that are invented by humans to maintain power relationships. First of all, I want to say, I don't really disagree with that, right? That like these, that gender and what we expect of people of different genders are I, social It's interesting that they didn't put like U.S. attached to that. Yeah, but I mean, I mean it's true everywhere in the world. Okay. Um, but then they say, yet race and gender also appear natural to people because they're so entrenched within the social order. And actually, I teach my students examples of things like that, like okay. when in class. So like every girl in the room has long hair. <laughs> why <laughs> huh? like and and it's like you don't even people aren't even conscious of the conformity to that and it's not always true of course there's always like one boy with really long hair I and know. like one girl with short hair you know whatever but but those people are outliers the second tenet is sexism and racism are normal yet wrong um because they are a permanent part of society and so Ooh. Sexism and racism racism need to be unmasked and exposed. And so critical race theory or critical gender theory are basically saying we have to unmask. We have to unmask this stuff. To expose these things. In our classrooms. I mean, I think most of our listeners are like, yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I don't love the word unmasking. I feel like that's pretty aggressive. But I think you have to get aggressive with some of these topics because they're not changing. Yeah. Counter narratives are necessary tools for analyzing the common culture of race and gender um, as they confront dominant interpretations that are often portrayed as objective. I also don't disagree with that because people who've been listening to us along the way know that like we are big fans of multiple perspectives, right? Bring it all in. Bring it all in. So 
Um, I don't, I don't disagree that we need multiple perspectives, but the way they're phrasing it, like counter narratives just seems kind of aggressive to me. These last two, I think, are the trickiest ones. So liberalism problematically prioritizes incremental, uh, sorry, incremental over sweeping social change. As a prevailing social paradigm, liberalism has led to painstakingly slow progress for women and people of color. Our system, our, our government system, is designed to be slow. Like, it's, it's designed to be conservative. It's designed to, like, pit two parties against each other so that and they're essentially to the death in, until, ineffective. Until the next generation has to do it. Yeah. And, and the next generation will also be ineffective. So I don't, I don't disagree with that. And yet, there are lots of examples where this point is not true, right? Okay. Like, where change actually happened pretty quickly um, yeah. on, on different issues. We had an episode about Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Oh, yeah. That's a really cool example of like a counter to that where everybody seemed to be on the same page pretty quickly. So that's kind of neat. All right. And the fifth tenant is advances in civil rights for people of color and women have, and this is the part that's tricky, have only occurred when there was interest convergence where basically both White, parties. Yeah. Everybody is sort of agreeing at the same time. And they, they say where these interests, the interests of people of color and women are ultimately also serving the interests of whites and men. Makes sense. So it's, but it's tricky because it's like this, the only way to, you know, it's so, it's so negative, right? Yeah. And yet there are definitely examples where that's not really true either. And so here's why, so you can hear, like, I don't disagree with these tenets. No, but you have healthy question marks. I have healthy question marks. <laughs> and I know that there are, and, and I think it's tricky because, like, the, these are presented as, like, overarching truths. And, like, nothing. Yeah, for, it's like. Nothing is ever, like, always or never, you know. And, and I think those sort of, like. For this to be true, it's always. Yeah, like those sort of sweeping claims I just think are really problematic because that's not – that. like I would never be like, Brooke, you're always anything. Like I would never say that to a person even, yeah. if, even if that quality is something that I attach with you. So we shouldn't – we certainly shouldn't be doing that about our society and especially a society as diverse as ours with multiple states that have different laws. Do you feel like they're doing that though to really call it out and create change? Like if we don't call it this, if you don't name it, like you know how it's like if you don't name it, you can't define it, you can't you know research and do the thing. So they're mm -hmm. naming it and they're like now pull it apart. Yeah. No, I mean I think it's a really <laughs> important thing to to have like perspectives – to say, like, this is always true so that it can be, like, we can find conversation about it. Yeah. But I guess my real opposition to this is that I am very opposed to teachers preaching to students about things. And I think that... Well, I think you've always been on that. It's like, I'm not trying to preach. I'm trying to bring you along with me here. Mm -hmm. And, like... What's the style that we all of our lesson plans are in? Is inquiry based? Inquiry based. So, I want to talk about the inquiry model. The inquiry model was adopted by the National Council for the Social Studies. It is a model for instruction where you pose a question to students, and I think every all five of these points could be could be questions. Totally. Like turn them into questions. 
And what's very cool about the inquiry model is that it is entirely possible that every student in your class could walk away with concluding these five points, right? That, yep, over and over and over again in U.S. history or in world history or in our government class, we see this to be true, right? That liberalism prioritizes incremental growth. Yep. Ta-da. But we don't teach, like people don't learn well when someone's preaching at them. And one of the things that is crucial to the work, to these ideas, critical race theory, critical feminist theory is critical. Mm -hmm. Critical is the part that's there. So I, I think that if a teacher came in and was like, these are the five things you're going to learn about race and gender in my classroom, it's like, (laughs) you're not actually being critical about it. You're countering what is the norm that says like women have to adhere to these social norms. And by the way, that norm is reinforced in our schools everywhere. Um, The, you know, the pictures that teachers put up on their walls show girls in like certain roles and boys in other roles. There are fewer pictures of like female, you know, people in in, um, history that are posted in history classrooms. just your school administration. If there's not a woman in leadership, it's probably true. You're sending a message every single day that women don't belong in leadership. Those things are there and they're normalized. It's really difficult to then, you know, if that's the world people are in, to then come in and say, the world you are in is exploitive yeah. and wrong and da 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 because like that's normal for people. Yeah. And so what you what we do is we walk like we walk them through the evidence, right? That that's well and we make problematic them and wrong. As students be their own their own investigators. Like really think about their own experiences, how they apply and question and it's like is that is that right? Like I think I've seen you like talk about this with your students too. It's like, okay, here's the overarching question. Is that right? Is it wrong? Yeah. How do we know? What should we bring in? I think that's the position that teachers in classrooms should be in. We are the questioners. Yeah. We are curious. We're modeling curiosity because the reality is you have 12 years to teach students everything that they need to know to go off and be adults. And that's not enough time. And really what you're trying to give them is the skills to do it themselves and be perpetual learners in society. And you've talked about this, like the role of social studies teachers is creating good citizens. (laughs) Creating good citizens, creating good thinkers, right? People that are going to go out and think. And if you stand up in front of your classmen and are like, these are the five tenets about race and gender that everyone needs to memorize, like that's – that's not creating good thinkers. It's not creating good citizens. Well, you can see why people are outraged about critical race theory. You can see – I mean – the extremists I cannot see. You're on your yeah. own. But the ones that are like, maybe we should question this and maybe yeah. we should think about how this is being presented. You're right. You should always think about how things are presented to your students. You should constantly be interested in what your your students are learning and how it's being presented because it's it hasn't been inclusive for a long time. Yeah. And now you're saying you don't want it to be inclusive more. Right. That's dangerous. And I want to make sure I make very, very clear. I think the laws that are being passed blocking critical race theory from being taught and critical feminist theory from being taught, I think they are toxic. I think the people that are presenting those laws in state governments are disconnected from reality. I don't think that most middle and high school teachers are teaching any of this shit in class. I think this is mostly like a collegiate level and it's, I mean, it's a legal framework for for learning about law so i i want to make very clear that like i think those people are doing harm 
Because what they're doing is they're scaring teachers from talking about race and gender in the classroom and like shame on you for presenting these laws. Stop telling professionals what to do in their classrooms. You you know, you said this to me once and I really liked it. It's like, oh, no, no. Like that person can get up and speak at at a um, like a a hearing or a, a public hearing or whatever. Do they have a teacher's degree? Right. Are they certified? Right. Oh, they're not. Mm-hmm. So I'm all set. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like whatever that opinion is. Mm-hmm. Like if you haven't done it, if you don't have the thing, if you haven't tried the hard moment yeah. and walked through that with someone to challenge it, you have to come from a perspective of, yeah. I don't know, teach me. And right. if you can't, there's that means that you actually people, got you got missed in school too. <laughs> there's a lot of people who like literally have never been in a classroom as a teacher and think like, oh, because I was a student one time, I get it. It's like, no, no. <laughs> it is a, it, like, I would never, like, I've been to doctor's appointments before. I'm not going to, like, perform your surgery, you know? <laughs> like, oh, my God. You know? Like, no. Like, that, that just doesn't compute. Yeah, it doesn't compute. Well, so I like the bomb you're throwing out. And it's it's an interesting one. So, and I want to make very clear that I'm, I'm not saying, like, don't do it. Don't, like, I'm not saying that this these ideas are wrong. Like, there's lots of evidence to support that. But what I'm saying is, I think students will get there if you show them the evidence rather than if you share your conclusions. I if love you come that. in, wait, 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 you gotta say it again. So if you come in with your conclusion, this system is sexist, everybody hates women, it's oppressive, <laughs> da 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 da. There's gonna be ouch, kids ouch. sitting in the classroom being like, Well, I love my mom. And or, you know, like like you know, families like my spouse's where the mom was the matriarch, you oh, know, yeah. like you didn't mess with her. And so like, you know, if your teacher comes in and is like, women are oppressed, they'd be like, no, they're not. Have you met my mom? <laughs> she dominates, you know, like you're going to, you're going to immediately alienate, alienate people in your space versus inviting them in versus inviting them in. Let's ask a question. Yeah. Is, is the United States system inherent, you know, is is the world is world culture inherently, you know, yeah. misogynistic or sexist or something like that? And just because yep. you're asking the question doesn't mean the answer is prescribed. And I think it's nuanced, right? Yeah. Like it might be true, you know, it, it might be more true in some regions of the United States than others under certain laws, you know, under well, certain yeah, systems. It becomes geo geo focused as to what your norms are in your society where you live. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people thing. listening being like, but everywhere in the world, women are oppressed. And it's like, yeah. Like, like, You're not like wrong. We, do, we know that. Show them what that means. Because yeah, when, exactly. when you start saying women are oppressed, people are sexist, things are misogynistic, and they don't have like real world examples of what that means. Like, I'll give you a real world example, kids. Yeah. You ready? 12% of men qualify for mater- for paternity leave in the United States, 12%. So what that means is that 88% of families, if the woman has leave at all, which, you know, welcome to America. But anyway, <laughs> 88% of families, when they have a baby, what happens is mom stays home for X amount of time. X amount can, of time. Because there's probably not daycare, affordable daycare. Right. Mom stays home for whatever amount of leave that she has from work or she quits her job, right? Like uh, one of those two scenarios happens. Yeah. And here's what happens within that family. And the, uh, studies show this. Families where the couple is relatively egalitarian going into having children, they split domestic tasks 
what happens is this. Dad goes back to work. Dad's working a full-time job. He's exhausted from his life because we all are when we work full-time jobs. Mom's at home doing all of the domestic tasks because that's her job now and she does all that stuff. And then six weeks, 12 weeks, whatever your leave is later, she goes back to work. And dad's like, hey, it's been great while you're doing all that domestic shit. And she keeps doing it. So now she's doing domestic tasks on top of full-time job. And the system created that. Yeah. The system said, hey, dads, you do you. Go back to work. Provide for the family. Mom's got all this domestic stuff. The system said moms are better at childcare. As a woman who had postpartum depression and was basically (laughs) incompetent for six months of my life, no, women are not naturally better at child rearing, just so you know. Yeah. And there's so many studies out there that actually the the brain reacts the same exactly to a child. Same. Like a, a baby crying. I love this study. Um, and I actually think there was a documentary on, on Netflix, which I'll figure out what it's called. But um, it's a study of the brain and neurology. And when a baby cries, people always thought women have better hearing. Yeah. Or they're more attuned to a baby crying actually not true yeah (laughs) actually the brain reacts exactly the same way yeah male or female yeah to a baby crying so there is no innate response to crying yeah it's just in our culture that women hear it more or that i always hear my husband doesn't not true not Not true true. (laughs) dad level the fuck up no (laughs) no to the dads who are keep going keep going but it's it's really interesting that there's really and then like um yeah. maternal instinct there was a whole study around like bonding yeah and especially around um hetero couples but to yeah. um gay couples you know people are so concerned like there's no woman in the house or there's no man in the house and oh, are no. there gonna be the same what roles will they do ah, <laughs> they have the same bonding connection same bonding male or female yeah. children don't bond better with a mom or a dad it doesn't matter it's whoever's giving them love it's care it's care it's yeah. making like they call it the love bubble do you yeah. remember this when we were talking about babies like it's when you hold a baby two feet from your face like right in your face like that little snuggle bubble and you make direct eye contact it's called a love bubble yeah and whether you're male or female it does not matter whether your aunt uncle grandparent whoever is giving that to the baby it's like crack the baby's yeah. like it's all these endorphins go flying through their little brain they're like I, i'm obsessed with just you doesn't matter if you're male or female yeah. that happens yeah. to any baby that's an attachment your mom i mean that's how babies form attachments to adoptive parents right exactly so i mean so let's go back to the ingray model though if we came in and we said the U.S. system, in re- you know, is yeah. oppressive, people are going to go, what? Give me examples, <laughs> right? Or they're going to be like, yeah, that's true. And then people are going to be like, I don't – how do you know that's true? Right. And, and, and like, I mean, and I – it's so hard. Like, that example you gave of people saying, like, women are, are designed to, you know, somehow, or like – so much more nurturing. It's, like, nurturing. actually not Yeah, not I true. can't tell – I mean, I was in the, like, throes of postpartum depression, and I had so many – I mean, I can't even count how many older men came up to me, and they were like, Ew, isn't it just magical how your body just knows what to do? I'm like, my body doesn't know shit. <laughs> like, like yeah, sorry. my body is a science And, and actually, <laughs> you saying that to me is now – and on top of already struggling with postpartum depression, now I'm feeling guilty because you're telling me that I should magically get something and I don't. Oh, yeah. You and know? it's even like, – I mean, there's yeah. so many of those examples, which is really frustrating. But yeah. I think it's, you know, 
working in human resources. So yeah. I deal with like gender equality all the time. Like how do we make sure that every benefit we offer, every policy we have in place is gender neutral, mm -hmm. that we are offering the same to any person who works for our company, no matter their their role, their status, whatever, equity in all standings. Yeah. And we run up against I, – I talk to other HR professionals. And they're like, yeah, but like women just need more time. And I'm like, we're done talking now. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not offering the same amount of leave to the men in your company as the women, then we're done talking. Like I can't – you're not of my cloth. <laughs> right. And if a woman needs more time for medical leave, sure. right, that's a different type of leave. We have different leaves for right? that. And men could use like, it too. I did – I had two surgeries postpartum. Right. Um, which like my husband didn't. So, like, I deserve more time than he did, but I deserve more medical time, not maternal time or something, you know? Well, I can remember it with our first son. I had 16 weeks leave, and I was like, okay, that's a lot of time, me and a baby. And yeah. I, for those who listen and know, I love my job. I'm, like, yeah. obsessed with work. And I was like, um, can I go back? And I can remember going to my OB's office, and I was like – itching. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be home anymore. Like, I love my son. This is not about love. It was about genuinely enjoying what I do for work. And that fills me up in a different way. And I missed it. Yeah. And my OB was like, go back to work. Yeah. Who says you have to take 16 weeks? I'm like, well, they give it to you. And I feel bad for all these women who don't get it. And she's like, that's not your problem. <laughs> Yeah, you? 16 weeks. That's awesome. It was awesome. And it, I'm sure people in Europe are listening like, oh, you idiots. Americans. <laughs> 16 weeks But is also nothing. like, <laughs> who's this idiot who wants to go back to work? And I'm, I'm over here like, I had so many projects. And I had a, a male counterpart in my role at the time who was working on very similar projects. And there was this very competitive moment where we were both up for this promotion. And me stepping away in that moment really took a hit to my potential career growth yeah. and I could feel it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I, I don't want to return in 16 weeks and he's finished every project I started and he's taking credit for all the things I've done. And I could just see 16 weeks out. And I was like, I can't, I can't just sit back. And so just having my OB being like, go, go back, yeah. go, go back. You don't have, and I was like, the giving permission yeah. was such a weird moment. And I was like, okay, I am. And my husband's like, yeah, I still have the whole summer. He's a teacher at the time. I still have the whole summer off. I'll stay home. Like, you've got this. Go. And I was like, okay. And like yeah. the next day, putting like over putting my maternity work pants back on because <laughs> yeah. I was still not healed from giving birth. Oh, my God. And I was okay with that. I was like in the car driving to the office. I was like, yeah. yeah. I wish people could see how like like oh, smiley you I was, are. I was like, like lit up. goosebumps. I was like, got my coffee. I had my laptop. And no one was crying. I was like, oh my god, this is the best. And you knew that your child was in the safe care of a parent who, who had them. and who had yeah. leave and, and had time and, and yeah. had time. And I got back to the office and I like double middle fingered the guy in there. I was like back and like crushed it and got yeah. the promotion over Did you him. Really? Oh yeah. You're such a badass. He, he left that job. But <laughs> it's so hard to be second fiddle next. Yeah. But it was but it was one of those moments where one thing I want to also throw out there though is like I think like I think it's really cool that that lit you up. But I also think going back to the idea of systems. Yeah. Like, how sad is it that you were like, I'm gonna lose out if I don't go back. And, and that like there, to I women mean, you're excited about the work. Time. You are excited about work. And so it's a kind of a different story. But there's also a piece of that story where you're feeling a little bit of anxiety Tons, about losing yeah. about losing out on these opportunities. And I think that anxiety is created by a system that says you are on vacation while this guy's totally. working. And you weren't on vacation. 
you were caring for a two-week-old. I was building a family. And the funnier thing is like two years later, that individual, former coworker, had a child. Yeah. And deeply knew that anxiety as well, missing out on a potential opportunity. And we had a really wonderful discussion. He's like, I can't believe that you did this at a younger age and I'm now doing it at an older age and I'm still feeling this. And I was like, everyone does this. And like to have that perspective of like, this actually happens to everyone who feels like they are in a moment where they have to step away from their job. And how do we, and I'm in human resources, how do I in particular make sure that people feel good about stepping away from their job and like, we've got you. Yeah. When you come back, you've lost no ground. Yeah. And when you come back, if you need to work part-time, if you need to transition slowly, if you need to figure out what new normal looks like and you yeah. can't run at the clip that you were running before, because let me tell you, working without kids, <laughs> you can run. Yeah. Working with kids, yeah. there's a different priority structure and you have to figure out but what But it doesn't make you is. less engaged. Exactly. And also, like, I find as a worker, like, I work less for sure, like hours of a day. Oh, sure. But, but I work I harder work in the, in the very efficiently yeah. because I'm like priorities. What do, you know? And and then I'm like really in on the things rather than like these tertiary things that I don't oh, necessarily yeah. need to be doing. All the water cooler moments. You're like, see you later. I yeah. don't. I literally don't have time for that. Yeah. What I do have time for is six projects. These by that. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. like you just use your time a little differently. Yeah. But it also is so, just understanding those perspectives. But I think those norms come in everywhere and if we right. don't challenge them from a classroom starting yeah. point they're gonna but continue. if we don't investigate if it's not an open question right if it's let's look at the system and see how it's oppressive it's right. like no 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 start with the question is it oppressive right and then you know like let's go through you know and and does the system promote sexism and the example of only 12 percent of dads qualifying for leave that is the system. That is employers. That is the government yep. saying, the you know, we prioritize mom having leave. And, like, you know, I don't even know what, like, gay male couples do in that scenario, right? Like, well, if they work for great companies, which, right. you know, good for them, they get the same leave as women. Right. So we it has to be an investigation. It has to be a question, not a dictation. And in fact, like all research in social science knows that the way you ask the questions is really important because you can lead people to conclusions in, in the way that if you ask the question in a certain way. Now, young people like middle and high school students do need help understanding what these things mean. So like maybe pause and like break that down as a class and like what does it mean when only 12 percent of dads like what are what are we saying about who's responsible for children yeah right and and who's we you know and and maybe people just need to be more thoughtful about the companies they they work for and we can select you know we can select into those or or whatever but i also think Private organizations can turn the tides. It's a similar thing where if the states make enough laws, you can flip federal. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with companies. If private companies do the right thing, all companies have to start doing it. It becomes competitive. It it becomes competitive. Exactly. You're going to get the best employees. There's this huge movement of build equity. They will come and they will move. And that's how we're doing it from a corporate perspective. And so from a teaching perspective, it's probably very similar. It's like, if I get enough scales to tip the tides, we'll get this train. It's like, here we go. Let's keep moving this down the tracks. Yeah, absolutely. So what we've done at RHP is we've posed 
questions to students. Every single one of the lesson yep. plans that we build is let's ask a question that is, and my criteria with the inquiry model is that it needs to be, the question needs to be dire. That's my acronym. Okay. <laughs> so it needs to be debatable. Yep. It needs to be important. It needs to be researchable. So no, like, did aliens create sexism? No, like, stop. <laughs> okay. Hey, I could go down, down that hole. Uh, hey, okay. So, and then E, it needs to be enduring. Okay. These come from the C3 framework. Um, and the enduring one is really hard yeah. in history classes because not every historic event, like, is immediately relevant today, you know? like So, actually, let's do an exercise really quick. Sure. Let's take a topic. Yep. And you help me build a question right sure. now. Sure. Okay. So um, let's do um, suffragettes because everyone loves that one. Okay. Cool. Suffrage. Suffrage. So we have a few actually already on suffrage on our website. I won't tell you what they are. But when I think about suffrage, there's a few like major – so if the first thing is debatable, right? Yeah. So let's make that. So where are the debates in the women's suffrage movement? Well, first of all, we know that there are suffragists and we know that there are anti-suffragists. Okay. So, so there's a debate. Because of that those two groups exist, we know that there's a debate. Okay. And the debate at the time is different than the debate we should be having in retrospect. Right. But the debate at the time was should women have suffrage? Right. Okay. Should women have suffrage? Is really, if you look, if you look into the sources, like what anti-suffragists were critical of is having an uninformed electorate, meaning like a lot of the criticisms, and these, by the way, these are written by women as well as men, is okay, so women can't like actually hold jobs in certain industries. So why should women voters be involved in passing laws about train operations yeah. and, you know, like being a naval officer and da 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 yeah, yeah. And so, so the concern is not that the voter has a vagina. It's that the voter doesn't have the experience know and yeah. have the experience to make an informed vote, right? All right, fair enough. That's actually kind of interesting because we see that contemporarily, right? Oh, like sure. people argue about, you know, the idiots that are voting, da 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 da. So a, a debate is like, does adding women voters create an uninformed electorate? Mm. Right. But then again, we have examples like, you know, men passing laws about women's bodies and Fun fact, they're, they're an uninformed <laughs> body passing laws, right? So, so so the inquiry-based model, so it's dire. Yeah, so it's debatable, debatable. right? Like, like, should we have an uninformed electorate? And, and, that the, and like, does women create an uninformed electorate? Like, no, because there's no requirement that men yeah. have degrees or a diploma in order to vote prior. So we already had an uninformed electorate people were Ill way more illiterate then than they are now right so so like it's a it's a debate that was had people were concerned about it like should i be allowed like i'm an educator i work in the social studies so should yep. i be able to pat, like vote on issues related to engineering you know like i do all the time you know <laughs> <laughs> right like so um so th that's a good debate another debate in is 
about racism within the suffrage movement. So we have a great inquiry on our, on our website about, uh, actually we have a a few versions of it looking at racism in this period. We actually got a really angry, um, email. You know, you're doing well when we get angry emails. Yeah. My favorite are the trolls on our Instagram. Oh yeah. Please come, please come more, more of those. I I love them. I don't know if they're real. I I love Alicia on our board who just (laughs) like, bring it. (laughs) I'll debate you till the cows come home. So this person was really upset that we were even asking the question about racism in suffrage because she's like, she was basically saying like Susan B. Anthony, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, like these are icons in the women's movement. Like, why are you trying to knock them down? And I am like, lady, you got to be open to like, like an, 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 a Question tenant it. of yeah. enlightenment thinking. Being enlightened is being open minded, right? Is it possible that Susan B. Anthony, whom the 19th Amendment is named after, is it possible that she was also racist? Yeah, she lived in the 18. 18- 70s like it's possible it's possible it's It's possible possible. that i'm racist right Right now now. (laughs) because i'm a white woman living in rural new hampshire you know our place of privilege is x yeah of course we have to question our 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 influences and could that be true yeah and and like am i is my intent to be racist no you know like of course not um but intent and and reality can sometimes be different so like we have to be open to asking the question. Yeah, until e- there's equitable experiences, racism is always going to be a question. Like, right. there you go. Yeah, bring it in, debate so, so, it. But but ask the question, right? Yeah. Like, don't don't necessarily don't don't assume that Susan B. Anthony was racist. Let's look at the evidence. Let, was let's, Susan B. Anthony racist? Right. <laughs> let's look at what she said. Let's look at what um you know, and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they're best buddies, but like one might be more than the other, right? And yep. like, let's look at what they actually said in the moment. They did say things that, you know, included racial slurs and things like that. And, you uh, you know, some some of those you have to, like, put in time and place. Like, well, that's everyone, exactly – We always have that contemporary lens. So you have to bring in of the time, was that racist still? Right. Was that – was what they were saying considered racist? And then also, like, even if it was, did that make it okay? You know, like, those are the types of que- – like, those sort of things you have to keep asking, right? It, it sort of creates yeah. this, like, question snowball that that builds and builds and builds. But one thing in that whole issue in that period is Frederick Douglass actually, who's, you know, the most prominent abolitionist in that in that period. He's yeah. one of the first black men to be an ambassador for the United States. Held like, a pretty high regard. Yeah. He <clears throat> defends both of them. And yeah. that's kind of tricky. Like, I don't know what to do with his defense because they are saying these things. And yet he comes to bat for them yeah. even though he disagrees on like what policies the well then, then the you American bring, you bring in so many debates like because african-american men got the vote before white women yeah was he like well if we get white women we can get african-american women the vote yeah. like uh <laughs> right you know so what was his plan and you can ask all these questions like keep asking bring, questions keep going keep going it's like and you could debate the because you you don't know they're not here to tell you their own narrative. Yeah, you have to go off of all the documentation that you provide. And, yeah, and you have to say, okay, well, it says it here. This yeah. is that, and then the kids become they become historians, it's investigators. They get yeah. to actually engage in it. The, another one, and this is jumping ahead in time, but in um, when World War One breaks out, there's this big debate <laughs> among suffragists about whether or not they should continue to advocate for the vote because, you know, flash back a few decades in Susan B. Anthony's time, they, when the civil war broke out, 
they decided we're going to focus on, on the Civil War. We're going to be nurses. We're going to roll bandages. We're going to, you know, do whatever we need to do for the war effort. We're going to fight and pick up guns because they did that. They, they did, did that. They did that, too. Okay. And although not the privileged elite Susan B. Anthony's, and <laughs> they did not pick up guns. It was mostly poor women. But um, the the World War I era women, it's a new generation of women, have that history behind yeah. them. They know that history. They know that it set the suffrage movement back. back. Yeah. And so, so they stop. said, we're not stopping. And so every single day during World War One, they lit a fire in front of the White House. Um, they were called the Silent Sentinels. And they stood mm-hmm. in front of the White House holding signs. And a lot of the signs included quotes from the president about democracy, um, which they saw as so hilarious. Good. So good. Right. It's so great. But the, de- the question, the, the debate is, were they unpatriotic? Because yeah. here's a nation at war, a president at war, and admittedly a horrible war. World War One is tragic, horrible, um, and here are women, kind of like distracted from the literal effort of like saving, distracting people from the effort of literally saving American, French, German, you know, English lives. Some could debate if they had the vote. They could be right in that fight with them. Right. Hey, it's a debate. That's what makes it dire. You know, that's yeah, what makes exactly. it debatable, important, researchable, and enduring. So the 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 big thing is, is like as a teacher, the more I insert my opinion, the less I'm getting them to think about it. And right. w- with my undergraduates, I always say like your students, you know, I prepare future teachers. So yep. I have all these undergraduate students who are going off to get teacher certs. And um, I always tell them like, your students don't care what you think. And every, like I get a lot of pushback from my class because they're like, we do care. Like we want to know what our teachers think about stuff. And I think this is what this is my opinion, but I think that kids want to know what their teachers think to confirm if mm-hmm. their teacher if they like their teacher, oh yeah, if their it's all about likability. In if their t- if their political opinions align with their teachers, um, because the, the reality is, if you are liberal and you find out your teacher's conservative, changes how much you take in from what they say. Oh, totally, it's it's Vice receptive, versa. yeah. So like, <clears throat> well, I, that's that's the like me effect, which you can go down a rabbit hole there, but right, you'll th- you'll instantly. It's the same thing as if we don't have more women teaching history, yeah. less women are going to be listening in the class. It's mm-hmm. like this whole downward spiral of all that. Yeah, we need gender equity in yeah. all in all classrooms, and you know we harp on the fact that there are more men who teach history, but like we also want men teaching other subjects, right? Like Because right. the, the men are minorities in every other subject in school and especially in the elementary school levels. And we want to see them there because we want gender equity, right? Yep. We want boys and girls to have male role models just as much as they have female role models in elementary school. So bringing it back to critical feminist theory to close. Yeah, let's land this plane. If you are saying these are the five tenets and you have a student in your classroom who disagrees with one of the five or all of the five, mm-hmm. you've alienated that person. You've othered them. You've othered them. And now you're dealing your your challenge is an uphill battle versus if you asked, does liberalism prevent women and people of color from progressive like 
radical quick change, you know, that's a question. I think every one of those five should be turned into questions that students investigate. And my hunch is if you put the evidence in front of them, they would actually agree with all five of those. But by telling them you haven't made it an inquiry and it needs to be an inquiry for learning to happen. Because real learning happens when people are holding the evidence in front of them and they go, holy crap, it's all here. Yep. And they draw the connection. And they draw the connection. I love it. Well, Kelsey, I liked your bomb. I like where it landed. Thanks, Brooke. (laughs) See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.